objects in the dark and that he had light flashes. You're listening to the news on RTHK. That's going to create more turbulence. The economic statistics. A triple dead recession. Collapsing commodities. Monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Friday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. retail sales rebound to their highest level in 14 months. IMF negotiators walked out of a Greek debt talk meeting in Brussels and Twitter CEO Dick Costolo resigns. Well, as U.S. retail sales exceed expectations and economic data out of China suggests that the downturn may have bottomed, we'll ask uh, the Reorient Group's Uwe Parpart whether the global economy is picking up steam and what this means for markets. Then we'll talk with Platz's Vandana Hari about uh, the recent rally in oil prices. And our last guest, Elizabeth Chu from IP Global, sheds light on property investment in Tokyo. Peter Lewis is guest host today. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. Peter, has the economic data out of the U.S. lifted your spirits? Yes. Actually, what I was um, impressed by was uh, not so much the the number for May, but those revisions for March and April. March was revised up from 0.5 to 0.9. April, which was negative 0.1, became plus 0.1. And what that tells me is that the, the slowdown that we saw in the first quarter is much more likely to be temporary. And uh, the economy is rebounding in the second quarter. So this provides a dilemma for the Fed next week because the Fed is already behind the curve. It needs to think quite seriously about raising interest rates. I suspect it won't in June, but it should really, it really needs to think very hard about these latest numbers. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk in the last few hours about the significance of these numbers. Here's Bloomberg intelligence economist Rich Yamaroni. One of the things that you have to think of, though, is this is a goods dominant report. Okay, um, that is, we don't see services in this report except for restaurants. Yeah. Okay, sixty-five percent of what consumers spend in this country services. on services. You know, you're not going to see the hockey games. When you go to a hockey game, you're not going to see your phone bill. You're not going to see your gym membership. You're not going to see any of these things in here. And that's what we spend our money on: taxi cabs, haircuts for those of us who have hair. Um, but you're not going to see those things. But you do see um, a lot of goods. And we are buying goods. We're buying non-durable goods. We're buying food. We're buying energy. We're buying um, some higher, uh, some actually lower priced. And that's the that's the difference. In Greece, stocks enjoyed their best day in almost four months as hopes were raised that Germany may be softening its stance on the conditions for a bailout. The Athens General Stock Exchange Index rose 8% over the day. Banking stocks led the advances as reports suggested that Germany may consider a series of smaller loans in return for gradual reforms. But after the close of European markets, IMF negotiators left the talks in Brussels, citing major differences between the parties. Now, what does this mean for chances of a deal? Here's Eurasia Group President Ian Bremer. 
But the reason you're seeing all the headlines say the markets go crazy is because the IMF has walked us, stormed off and said we're still very far apart. Again, th this it, you're, you're going to see negotiation on both sides right up until the wire. It's going to be hard and the deal is, is only going to last them for a few months. How the walkout by IMF negotiators sparked buying in both European and U.S. bonds as a safety trade. Yields on the 30-year U.S. Treasury bond fell by 11 basis points, the second biggest fall in the 30-year Treasury yields over two years. And that was despite the good economic data and the threat of higher interest rates. The CEO of Market Field Asset Management, Michael Schell, says that perhaps we're in a reflation phase. I think you've had a central banking panic over the last um, 180 days. Uh, you've had, I mean, just saw last night, as you said, New Zealand and, and South Korea kind mm -hmm. of joining the party. Um, and, you know, I, I think at the very least, as far as financial assets are concerned, we're in a, we're in a reflation phase. And I think it will, it, will, it will extend beyond that. Central banking has become this big international club and they all read the same papers and they all talk to each other and they all feel they need to do their part. Uh, and I think, you know, this has really been, you know, I think that the degree of sort of international cooperation is, is as extreme today as it was in the financial crisis without a financial crisis. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up 38 points to 18,039. The S&P 500 rose 0.2% to 2,108. And the Nasdaq ended the day at 5,082, a rise of five points. The dollar gained ground after the retail sales data closing 0.6% higher against the euro and the yen. And in company news, Twitter CEO Dick Costolo announced that he would be stepping down from the company that he has led since 2010. Co-founder and chairman of the company, Jack Dorsey, will take over as interim CEO. The stock, which is down almost 50% from its all-time high, jumped 8% in after-hours trading. So how's Wall Street reacting? Here's Nomura Securities' Anthony DiClemente talking to Bloomberg after the market closed. Yeah, well, just on a stock movement after the close, it, as part of the announcement, the company reaffirmed their full-year guidance. So I think that's part of the reaction. But, you know, I also think that, uh, you know, there are, there are a number of investors who, like your previous callers, think that Twitter can overhaul its, its, its user interface to improve it, to make it more engaging, to rejuvenate growth in users, to uh, amp the monetization and reaccelerate it. And there's a view that, you know, it's time for a fresh change in leadership. Um, we'll see what the company says on its conference call in a half an hour, and we'll see how the stock trades tomorrow morning. Um, but it's just, look, it's such a volatile leadership culture at Twitter, even going back to the early days. And if any anyone has, any one of your listeners has, has read Hatching Twitter, you can, you can kind of just take away from that book that you have a history of uh, change in terms of the leadership. And for me, you know, I contrast that with something like Facebook, which admittedly is controlled and closely held by Mark, but you have a very stable leadership and a very strong and, and, and uh, well-clarified vision for the future of the company. So, uh, you know, it, it remains to be seen whether or not these management changes will have more of a detrimental impact on Twitter over time uh, than, than a positive one. 
Economic data out of China showed that retail sales, industrial production and fixed investment all bounced from the previous month. Industrial output rose from 0.2% in May, just ahead of expectations. And retail sales also rose 0.1%. And Hong Kong stocks rebounded following Wednesday's MERS-related fall. Stocks were boosted by interest rate cuts in South Korea and New Zealand. All right, let's bring in our first guest of this morning, Uwe Parpart, who is the chief strategist at the Reorient Group. Good morning, Uwe. Yeah, good morning. Uwe, do the numbers out of China suggest that the PBOC stimulus is working? Uh, I'm not so sure that uh, that is really um, uh, hugely stimulus-related. Um, I think the um, Chinese economy is stable. Uh, it uh, had a bit of a problem early on in the year, but, you know, that's kind of seasonal. And uh, uh, mind you, if you look at the first quarter of the year in the United States, it was actually negative, uh, you know, 0.7%. So um, uh, China's uh, exports are recovering uh, reasonably well. And, um, you know, the other, uh, you know, consumption parameters, uh, uh, investment and so on, uh, are, are stable. So, uh, we're, we're satisfied that, uh, you know, China is essentially going to be uh, sailing along at around, uh, you know, 7% both. And, uh, you know, that's still the fastest growth in the world. Okay, so it sounds like you think that the so-called economic slowdown has bottomed out. Yeah, I think it, uh, it, it certainly has. I, you know, I think that uh, the problem is that people tend to average over, uh, two parts of the Chinese economy that you can't really average over. There's uh, the, the, the old-style economy, the, uh, you know, export-led uh, cheap labor uh, growth part of the economy. Uh, uh, that's, you know, that's on its way out. And at the same time, there is uh, another part of the economy that, uh, you know, is, is uh, exemplified by the tech sector, by, you know, the, the Tencents, the Alibabas, and so on and so forth. And, that part of the economy is growing massively, and mm. uh, you know people just have to be on the right side of the economy if they want to uh, if they want to make money. Right now, uh, sort of in looking at U.S. data, uh, and when it comes to the U.S. consumer, one of the points made earlier by Richard Yamaroni of Bloomberg is that the retail's sa- retail sales report that was out includes goods but not services. What do you make of that? Well, uh, you know, that's, that's the way it's being counted, right? I mean, I, I, you know, just like we have a manufacturing, uh, uh, ISM and we, or PMI and, uh, and the services one, um, you know, retail sales, uh, uh, and, and, you know, people, people buy things and that's a significant parameter. When they don't, then the, uh, manufacturing side of the economy is, uh, going to be suffering. So I, I think the, Retail sales number uh, that we have had, uh, you know, if you go back to last uh, November, uh, the numbers have been bad. Uh, the assumption that uh, a lot of economists in the United States had made that uh, somehow the lower oil prices would uh, be good for the economy, that's not been the case. We, we've always thought of that as, as being a very, very wrong assumption. The U.S. economy is not doing well. It's... Uh, going to grow by, oh, at the very best, about 1% uh, in the first half of this year. 
and uh, by certainly by less than two percent for the year as a whole. So uh, the U.S. is no longer leading economic growth in the world; it's uh, lagging at this point. So, and, so where, uh, we, where, where, where is the leadership in um, in economic growth coming from? If it's not from the U.S., where do you think we can look for? Well, it, it, is, see that? it is clearly at the moment coming from. Uh, from China, and we've seen a remarkable recovery in uh, in Japan. Uh, the uh, Japanese, uh, you know, first quarter GDP uh, was uh, nearly four uh, percent annualized. Uh, contrast that to negative zero point seven percent for the United States, and uh, China is growing at seven uh, percent. So that's leadership, so and uh, you know we see that happening. Uh, for the rest of the year. So the World Bank thinks that emerging markets are not going to be able to provide the stimulus to the global economy anymore and we need to look at the developed markets. So would you agree with that assessment from them? Uh, no, I would not. I totally disagree with that. Um, the, uh, uh, the World Bank's record on, on forecasting the, the global economy is absolutely miserable. Uh, the only ones who've done worse is the U.S. Fed. Uh, the U.S. Fed since 2009 has not made delivered a single correct forecast. They've all been wrong, and they've all been wrong in the same direction, namely over, overly optimistic. So, uh, you know, on the other hand, everybody's been talking about hard landings in China now for the last, I don't know what, uh, several years, uh, which has not materialized. It's a not stable growth, and it's guided by a monetary policy uh, that has been cautious and uh, to our you know, assumptions, uh, you know, very positive. Uh, Uwe, speaking of uh, the World Bank, they put India's growth forecast at 7.5%. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, China versus India? You're certainly sounding pretty bullish about China. Well, certainly more bullish than about India. Um, I, I don't, uh, you know, uh, see that the... Uh, high hopes that people have had for the uh, Modi government and for reforms, you know, have materialized. And, um, you know, India needs infrastructure. If you look at the longer-term uh, economic development, uh, if you look at China, China built infrastructure first. Um, China has uh, trains that, you know, run at the same speed and, the, you know, same quality as in uh, France or in Germany or in Japan. Uh, India doesn't have a single one such train. Uh, China has uh, roads that are of the same quality as in Europe. Uh, India doesn't have a single one of those. Um, these are very, very basic uh, things that have to be built. And, um, you know, Mr. Modi said he was going to reform the investment and the private sector input into this. It has not happened. So, you know, the... Uh, I think it's still an open question whether uh, his government is going to actually do in India as a whole what he did uh, when he led uh, Gujarat before. All right, Uwe, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Uwe Part Part. He is the chief strategist at the Reorient Group and a regular guest on Money for Nothing, one who definitely doesn't follow the herd. Well, the International Energy Authority has said that the global oil production remains exceptionally high and supply would outpace demand in 2015. Now, despite cuts in the number of drilling rigs in the U.S., production in the country is expected to be up 800,000 barrels a day compared to a year ago. Brent crude closed down 1.2% at $64.92 per barrel. Let's bring in our oil specialist from Singapore, Platts 
Asia's editorial director, Vandana Hari. Good morning, Vandana. Good morning to you, Renita. So, Vandana, you know, prices of oil have rallied uh, since uh, OPEC's decision last week. Now, uh, most likely, are they going to hold or... Um, you know, you know. Does the, I guess the question is, does this rally actually have legs? Indeed, and I wonder how many people in the oil markets are wondering the same thing. Seeing the patterns, well-established patterns we have seen so far this year, oil breaks breaks away from um, you know low 60s, high 50s for Brent, starts moving up, and then it it gets a reality check from fundamentals and gets pulled right back again. We have indeed seen an uptick this week, um, which sort of reversed a lot of the downslide we saw last week with a lot of bearishness going into in the lead up to the OPEC meeting. Um, what has happened this week is uh, attention uh, grabbed by a lot of very bullish data from the U.S., especially on the demand side, suggesting that U.S. demand might surprise to the upside. We have seen... Uh, uh, more than expected drop uh, in uh, U.S. inventories, uh, commercial stocks of crude and gasoline, gasoline being a very important product in the U.S., mm. nearly half of U.S. demand is gasoline. So a uh, very smart uptick there. The big question, though, to, to go back to your uh, original thought is, is this demand growth going to sustain? So as we have seen previously, what happens is um, the market rallies and gets excited by uh, uh, some um, encouraging data here and there. And then comes the realization of the huge flood of oil that still remains in, in, in the world, you know, oversupply of nearly 2 million barrels per day. So the crucial question at this point is, yes, there are pockets of demand growth. Is that going to catch up to the oversupply? And is that going to sustain into the second half of this year? Yeah, uh, you know, the U.S. oil production, uh, the IEA said, will peak at uh, forty at a 43-year high, uh, despite the number uh, of reduction in rigs to, the, to, you know, its lowest point since August 2010. So is OPEC's strategy of trying to drive out low-cost producers working? So the U.S. Uh, shale um, phenomenon surprised us uh, in the past couple of years. That was a big reason why uh, the markets were kind of caught on the back foot last year, not expecting such a phenomenal uh, production growth in the U.S. of more than a million barrels per day. That growth rate is subsiding, but as you just mentioned, it is still expected to grow by about seven to 800,000 barrels per day in the U.S. alone. And of course, not to forget, OPEC is pumping at full tilt as well. They agreed to a 30 million barrel per day target. They're doing nearly a million barrels per day over that. So we have a flood of oil. Back to U.S. shale, they are driving new cost efficiencies, new drilling efficiencies every minute as we speak. So, um, you know, it is completely redefining even what the market had understood of shale. Even that needs to be le- relearned in a way in every single day. So as you quite rightly pointed out, rigs have been falling nonstop for almost six months. Production has been rising almost nonstop uh, for the past six months. So which is what, uh, you know, really has the market a little bit scratching its head, uh, what to make of this 
but U.S. production is certainly going to continue rising this year. It's going to continue rising right up to 2020, actually, according to the uh, Energy Information Administration of the U.S. So, so Vandana, OPEC's strategy of trying to, to drive out some of these low-cost producers is, is having some effect, but it's also doing quite a bit of harm, isn't it, to some of the OPEC member states as well. So how long do you think that will continue before we start to see you know, damage to, to some of the other oil-producing countries in OPEC that just can't cope with uh, prices at this level? Yeah. Yeah, so OPEC um, is not, it's not a shale versus shake fight. Uh, I think it's more the high-cost battle versus the, the low-cost uh, low producers. I don't think the U.S. is any longer the marginal cost barrel. So the question really now for the market is, so where is this marginal barrel? And a lot of that, the high cost production, is actually in the OPEC countries. You know, we have seen it's a divided house. It's not unanimous. We have seen countries like Libya, um, Iran, Algeria, Venezuela say time and again that OPEC should cut because these prices are really hurting them. Uh, what, where do we go from here? I think a lot of the low-cost producers are somehow still producing more because they want to keep their revenues up, especially when prices are down. You want to keep your revenues up, you just have to produce more. Uh, a few of them have deep pockets. So Saudi Arabia, I'm sure they would want higher prices than what we see today as well, but they just have tons of cash reserves so they can sustain. So it's become, you know, high-cost versus low-cost producers a little bit. Also, who has the deeper pockets, who's able to withstand and not blink first? Uh, I think the jury is still out on where, who is going to blink, where is that marginal cost barrel going to disappear from. It's just not happening yet. All right, Vandana, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Vandana Hari is the Asia Editorial Director for Platts. The Nikkei is up uh, one quarter of a percent this morning to 20,434. Australia's ASX 200 index is down 0.04% to 5,560. And Seoul's Kospi is up six-tenths of a percent to 2,068. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.12 US dollars. The US dollar will buy you 123.62 yen. And one pound sterling is currently be trading at 12 Hong Kong dollars and two cents. The time is now 8.24 a.m. And the Norges Bank Investment Management of Norway is one of the world's biggest sovereign wealth fund managers. It plans to open an office in Tokyo, uh, seeking investment opportunities in the property market there. Now, could this be a sign of a property market rebound in Japan? Let's talk to IP Global's senior investment manager, Elizabeth Chu. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning. So, Elizabeth, you know, the buzzwords floating around are stable yields, weaker yen, the Olympic effect. Can you tell us why Tokyo's property market is so hot right now. Yeah, no, certainly. I think um, obviously the weak currency has been has been a major factor for uh, foreign investors going into Japan and being interested in it. But uh, related to that, to that, um, you know, the ultra low interest rates, the fact that Abenomics is really having a very positive uh, um, GDP impact um, has really led to people from Hong Kong and and also uh, people over in the US being very interested um, in property in uh, in Tokyo. Are banks opening doors for overseas investors? Yeah. <laughs> 
interesting uh, point there because that obviously has been a, a, a great barrier for foreign investors over the past few years. Um, Japanese banks certainly are opening up um, uh, um, their doors to uh, foreign investors, but also uh, foreign uh, banks are actually opening up doors to you know people in Hong Kong and Singapore to actually invest uh, over into uh, Tokyo. And is it just foreign investors who are driving the the prices up? What about the the locals? Are, are we seeing you know local people moving into Tokyo from uh, from other parts of Japan and, and pushing prices further ahead? No, absolutely. I think if you if you look at Tokyo uh, for a second um, here, is that you know the rural areas are, are are moving into Tokyo because of the fact of you know employment. And I think over the since two that 1998, um, unemployment has been the lowest, um, and also wage growth is starting to actually. Um, improve. So all of those things have, have made people want to come into Tokyo, certainly for Japanese people either wanting to rent there or also to, to buy houses there. And does that get offset by the fact that the demographics of Japan are that you know it's an aging population and you have also people who are wanting to move out of Tokyo as well? What, what's happening to the population overall in Tokyo? Yeah, I mean obviously there is the you know the, the elephant in the room, which is the aging population. But um, you know at the same time, um, people moving into Tokyo is is quite um, has been happening for the past ten years. It's been growing, I think, at about 0.5 percent per annum. And so um, you know the fact that there are there is employment over in um, in Tokyo has really um, made um, you know rental uh, prices sorry rental uh, um, uh, grow there by I think two point nine percent this year so that's something that we haven't seen before for the for a very long time in Tokyo. Um, can you give us any specific examples about how Abenomics might factor in? Well, it's actually quite hard to measure, I mean, a direct impact. But, um, you know, certainly, as I said, the, the, the interest rates and, and also the weak currency um, has made that such that the GDP um, forecast is now positive. Um, you know, ever since 2012, that hasn't really happened. It's been going up and down, sort of positive and negative in uh, alternates. But certainly now, I think the outlook is for it to be very positive. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this morning. That is Elizabeth Chu, and she is IP Global's Senior Investment Manager. Well, here we are almost at the end of the show. The Nikkei is up 0.15% to 20,412. Australia's ASX 200 down 0.19% to 5,552. And Sol's Kospi up six-tenths of a percent to 2,068. Gold is currently valued at 1,180 dollars per ounce and Brent crude oil at $64.85. Well, Peter, here we are at the end of a week. Uh, next week, we've got a U.S. Fed meeting coming up that's uh, bound to affect markets. Uh, what else should we be looking out for? I'd also look at um, Congress. It looks like they're going to give fast track authority to President Obama to close a massive trade deal with 11 Pacific Rim nations. This will be extremely important to both the U.S. economy and the global economy and could provide um, a significant boost. All right, Peter. Well, thank you. And thank you for joining us. That's our regular guest host, Peter Lewis, founder of Peter Lewis Consulting. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this week's Money for Nothing. And a big thank you, of course, to Sandra Lamb, our producer. Well, let's take a quick look at the weather forecast. Uh, the weather today will have sunny periods and also a few showers. It will be hot during the day. The temperature right now is 27 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 88%. And here's Sam Butler with the news. 
A new investigation into the German wing's air disaster in March is to be opened in France. It follows confirmation that several doctors who treated the co-pilot, Andreas Lubitz, who deliberately crashed the plane into the French Alps, had judged him unfit to fly. A French prosecutor, Brice Robat, said the doctors failed to tell Mr Lubitz's employers because of Germany's strict patient confidentiality laws. He said the investigation would decide whether manslaughter charges should be brought. Over the last five years before the crash, he consulted 41 different doctors. Do these numerous medical consultations correspond to a real health problem? We have reason to believe that was the case because he was complaining about eye problems. He said he saw only 30 or 35 percent of objects in the dark and that he had light flashes. South Korea has reported four new cases of the respiratory virus MERS, bringing the total to 126. Altogether, 10 people who tested positive for the virus have died, although all had serious pre-existing illnesses. The American Defense Secretary Ashton Carter has called on Beijing to stop building artificial islands in disputed waters of the South China Sea as he hosted a top Chinese general. The visit to the Pentagon of General Fan Shanglong, who's vice chairman of the Central Military Commission, was relatively low-key. Prior to visiting Washington, Mr Fan went to California and Texas. He's due to meet National Security Advisor Susan Rice at the White House today. A U.S. judge has said two white police officers should be charged with the murder of a 12-year-old black boy in Cleveland, Ohio, last November. The officers were called to a playground where the boy, Tamir Rice, had been seen holding what turned out to be a toy gun. The incident was one of several in recent times involving white policemen opening fire on black people. The BBC's Tom Bateman reports from Washington. Tamir Rice was holding a replica gun that could